Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of Scripture, the words of the sermon, and the living word of your Spirit reach us, strengthen us, encourage us, so that we might make a witness in the struggle. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning will be read by the Wardell family, David, Donna, Sylvia, and Kara. Listen for the word of God. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, and chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. Hear now what the Spirit has to say to the church today. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around you, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Are you tired of talking about COVID-19 and the pandemic? Okay, let's talk about sports. I can hear a number of you groaning from your dens and living rooms right now, but I don't do this often, so just bear with me. Now, let's be clear, sports fans would rather watch sports than talk about it. But right now, what sports are there to watch? I saw a nationally televised cornhole competition, a championship being played. Now, I was amazed by the skill of the two masked contestants tossing those beanbags right where they wanted them. I don't know who was who or what the person looked like I was rooting for, but I was rooting for red masks to win. I was equally amazed that two commentators had so much to say about strategy, about wrist flips and bag positioning. Still a nationally televised cornhole event? I don't watch car races as a rule. It's not my thing. But I did watch a NASCAR race for a little while the other day. Well, not really. 
What I watched for a while was iRacing. This is where professional drivers spread around the world sit behind the wheel attached to a console rather than a car competing in a virtual race. And as I watch these realistic but not real cars flying around a virtual track with frozen figures in the stands, I felt like I was looking over the shoulder of my nephew Chris playing a video game. And that's about how long I spent watching the race, about as much time as I would spend watching a video game over someone's shoulder. Is that sports in the age of the pandemic? Or is this sports? In a pandemic. For weeks, millions have been watching a sports series. You would think it was the NBA playoff series because after each event, journalists have written about it and Sports Center has reported on it, telling what happened, following up with human interest stories, focusing on rivalries, having additional interviews, having debates about the issues surrounding it. The 10 episodes of The Last Dance, which aired over five weeks, was not an actual sports series, but a documentary. It used the lens of the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls season to look at the entire Bulls dynasty and its players and coaches using flashbacks. But really, the series was about Michael Jordan. And since I am a huge Michael Jordan fan, I gave this non-sports sporting event my undivided attention. I was most fascinated when Jordan was interviewed because I wanted to know what drove him to become the best basketball player to play the game and how he inspired, pushed, and bullied the players around him to meet his high standards. Jordan's whole focus, it's obvious when you watch the series, his entire focus is on winning. Winning everything, anything. Basketball games, golf matches, coin flips, cards, smack talk. And it was obvious that Jordan would say or do whatever was necessary to win. But though I was a fan who hung on every word, was fascinated you won't hear me quoting him often in sermons. Aside from the fact that I do avoid using too many sports illustrations in sermons, and aside from his frequent profanity, his vision, as much as I admire him, his vision of winning is not mine. I'm a competitive guy. I mean, just ask the Binghams and the Jamisons what I sing when I win a card game. But at the end of the day, and certainly in the pulpit, my focus is on how to win in life. And often, he lost by winning. When I quote a basketball great in a sermon, the few times I will allow myself to do that, it'll probably not be the greatest player to play the game, but the greatest coach to coach the game. No, not Dean Smith. No, not Coach K. No, not any NBA coach who, to succeed, has to be more manager than coach. I'm talking about the coach whose teams won 10 national championships in 12 years, John Wooden, the coach of the UCLA Bruins. There's so much that I love about Wooden. He was an English major. I love English majors. I wish I had been an English major, not a philosophy major, as much as I enjoyed that. He was a deep thinker, a deep reader. He was someone with a profound Christian faith. 
He was a coach who found a way to motivate teams to win championships without using profanity or allowing his players to. And a coach whose highest priority was to mentor in life for those who looked up to him. How one lives and how one treats others was far more important to Wooden than winning basketball games. And because winning in life was his highest priority, frequently what he taught his players went beyond Pauly's pavilion to how players would live outside the basketball arena. You've heard some of his quotes, probably in non-sports setting. Here's one. Those who prepare to fail, those who fail to prepare, are preparing to fail. I can't get one right. That's as easy as that one. I should have prepared to say it right. How about this? If you don't have time to do it right, when are you going to find the time to do it again? And I like this one, especially in thinking about social distancing and wearing masks. Consider the rights of others before your own feelings and the feelings of others before your own rights. And then there's this one. It's something that Wooden would have said to a player playing hard but not thinking or someone that might be said by a supervisor to a worker or might be said of a committee consumed with busy work. Never confuse effort with achievement. There's a difference, you see, between productive effort and wasted effort. I would suggest that there is also a difference between productive struggle and wasted struggle. Struggle is often talked about as a virtue in and of itself. I mean, it's true, without struggle, there would be no growth, no learning, no change. And culturally, we get pep talks about this all the time. How about this for a wall poster? The depth of your struggle determines the height of your success. That quote is less inspirational when you learn that the one who said it, the R&B artist R. Kelly, is serving prison time. Success wasn't measured by him and how he treated others. Well, so how about this one from F. Scott Fitzgerald? The redeeming things are not happiness and pleasure, but the deeper satisfactions that come out of the struggle? Or why don't I just quote from the Bible? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. That last quote comes from our passage from 1 Peter. And by the way, now that I'm going to start talking about that passage, I'm going to stick with tradition and name the author as the Apostle Peter even though it's very likely that was not the case. I think that the entire passage, the entire letter that is 1 Peter, is misunderstood if we think that Peter is simply saying that struggle is good, always good, embrace it. Struggle on its own is a virtue. Let me be stark just to make my point. Grinding poverty is a struggle. Yes, some emerge from poverty the stronger and better for having endured and persevered, but it destroys lives. Addiction is a struggle. 
Yes, some in recovery are among the wisest people that you're ever going to listen to or meet for their having faced their addictions and grown as a result. But addiction has destroyed many lives, addicts, their loved ones. Yes, the Great Depression was a national struggle, and we can say that the best of the greatest generation gave so much to building communities because they emerged from the Depression with this resolve to improve their lives, to take care of themselves, to take care of others. But with just a little bit of research, you will find out how many bodies and spirits went broken because the struggle was just too much. To read First and Second Peter, you would know that the Christian community of faith to which these letters were written were that community was going through a struggle. It was being persecuted. Our passage begins by talking about the fiery trials the community had to endure. Trials can be translated as suffering and can also be translated as persecution. Our passage also talks about lions being on the prowl, possibly out to get them. Enough Christians have been thrown to the lions in the Roman Colosseum that lions have become a powerful metaphor for social forces that are predatory toward Christians. But before jumping to the conclusion that Peter is encouraging his readers to be ready to be literally burned at the stake or thrown to the lions, wouldn't that be grand? And then jumping to the conclusion that Peter is pumping them up to be martyred, consider the evidence of what it is that Peter actually wrote in his letters. The unique struggles of the community to which Peter writes comes of there being a community of aliens. They were oddballs. Now, Peter was a bit hyperbolic in speaking of the fiery trials and lions because most of the persecution they receive isn't physical attack, but that stuff of prejudice resulting usually in verbal abuse. Because they are a community that is devoted to remembering the words and repeat the actions of Jesus, their worship, their ethics, their priorities don't line up with any other religion, fad, or political party. Jews, some of them anyway, harass them because their community includes Gentiles and Samaritans and even some Romans. Romans harass them because their community includes Jews. And Peter would say that their struggles on their own, without purpose or without the right response, can be destructive, debilitating, discouraging, defeating, deflating, demeaning, dehumanizing. I could come up with a lot more words that begin with D. But let's just say that their struggle that is only endured and doesn't lead anywhere deserves not a D, but an F. Because it leads to victimizing and complaining and blaming and violence. Peter wants none of that. In response, he doesn't say that struggle is a part of life, even though that is certainly true. He doesn't go to the extreme of saying that it's better to die a Christian than live as a Jew, Gentile, Roman, pagan, or coward, even though sometimes people have to die for what they stand for. No, Peter wants this community 
to endure and thrive in these times. He is about their surviving while making a witness, not about their destruction. And what Peter says is helpful for us to hear today in our context. Peter is not asking his readers to see their struggle even as a gift from God, but rather if struggle comes, and it does, it inevitably does, if it comes in the midst of struggle, remember Remember God's love. Remember God's grace and God's community, what it's meant to be. When you must struggle, struggle like Christians. That is to say, join your struggle to that of Christ. Remember that, especially when there is crisis, especially when the tensions are up, especially when there is conflict. Remember that, especially because people are watching each other more keenly, more clearly to see what kind of person that you're going to be during that time. If you say something kind to another or kind on Facebook or act graciously to someone else's affront, it's going to be noticed more than ever. And if you respond in kind, sarcastically, meanly, join in the fray, trying to win some kind of battle in the way that maybe Jordan would win it, doing or saying anything, people are going to notice during those times more than any other. Earlier in his letter, Peter describes Jesus' struggle. Because he wants to give content to this idea that when you're in struggle, join your struggle to his. Whether the struggle was imposed on Jesus or because he chose it, he struggled because he loved. And he made sacrifices for those he loved. He struggled because he stood up for others who had little voice or standing on their own. He struggled because he welcomed into his company those who others demonized and shunned and wouldn't want to be seen with. He struggled because he put himself at risk to heal lepers and because he opened himself to criticism and even attack for speaking the truth, his truth. He struggled for the same reason he lived, to honor God's name, to live out his identity as a child of God, as God's son, to love as he had been loved. And it was all worth it because he was being authentic to himself as a child of God and obedient to God's claim on his life. It's what gave it its meaning. It's what gave his struggle the power to make a witness and transform other people's lives. So what about this pandemic? I'm not going to say that this pandemic is a gift. Oh, it can be, I guess, in how we respond, but I'm not going to say from the get-go that this pandemic is a gift. I want it to go away. I didn't know I'd in my lifetime have to face something like this. I think a lot of suffering will come of it. I want it to go away But it's not, not for a while. And I think Peter would respond by saying, well, it's here. Ask yourself the question, George, how are you going to respond? Will you simply try to survive it and not grow? 
Will you use it to lash out at others you don't understand or participate in the partisan blame games and give a Jordan focus to winning whatever it takes? Or will you join your struggle to that of Jesus and find a way to witness in the midst of it, to live according to your baptized identity, and in that way, give some kind of light to the world. Because a struggle, while not in and of itself is good, can become a gift if a witness is made. Peter would ask these questions of individuals who are able to use this time staying at home to get some rest, Sabbath rest, to give attention to their families, work on their hobbies, get their priorities right, learn to grow into the advice of Wendell Berry, slow down, pay attention, do good work, love your neighbors, love your place, stay in your place, settle for less, and enjoy it more. But Peter would also ask these questions of us as a community. He would have us remember those who have to work at some greater risk so that we can have food on our table and goods shipped to our homes. The poor who have no work and financial means to enjoy the break and those anxious about losing their jobs. He would remind us that the world is watching not only how we take care of ourselves, but how we who have the luxury of taking care of ourselves can then take care of others. Can we make a witness to a better way of living together, responsibly, showing respect, and pulling together so that we can get through this together? So if anyone wants to say that this pandemic is the best thing that ever happened to us, forgive me if I don't say amen. But if someone were to say that by joining our struggle to Jesus, we can be part of a good and gracious and beautiful movement where good and gracious and beautiful things can come, well, then I will say amen. Because I think it is God's will that we make that kind of witness. And I'll join you in praying that God's will be done. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.